This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Uh, Homaris, who was again Arminius's colleague, but also becomes his theological opponent, uh, he sees the whole issue not about predestination, but about justification by faith alone. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dr. James Dolezal. And James and I are privileged to have on the line with us today, Danny Hyde. Danny is the pastor of Oceanside United Reformed Church in California. He's an adjunct instructor at Mid-America Reform Seminary and Puritan Reform Theological Seminary. And he's the author of a number of books, prolific author, but the one we're going to speak with him about today is called Grace Worth Fighting For. It's a timely book. It's on the Canons of Dort. And of course, we are celebrating this year an anniversary of the Canons of Dort. So Danny, thanks for joining us today to talk about this. Yep. Thanks for having me, guys. Good to be here. So talk to us just briefly. Give a, give a historical survey of how the Synod of Dort came about and what the Canons of Dort are all about. Yeah, uh, I'll do that in 280 characters, whatever, right? Exactly. So, yeah. Give us the Twitter version. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Twitter version would be, uh, you know, uh, good, good guy turned bad guy dies and they condemn him from his grave. <laughs> that is the, okay, okay. So yeah. uh, that's, now, that, that's impressive. That is good. Yeah. That is good. There um, you go. Um, so, so talk to us <laughs> about good guy turned bad guy. So, uh, yeah, we call him James Arminius, Jacobus Arminius, Jacob Herman's son. He was the son of Herman. Hmm. He was a pastor, a trained pastor, theologian in the Reformed churches in the Netherlands. And uh, actually, you know, very consistent with his time. Uh, he, he traveled around to various universities studying the theology of the Reformation, he studied in Geneva. Uh, that was his main sort of hub of study and studied under Theodore Beza, uh, successor of Calvin. So he ended up back in the Netherlands and became a pastor in Amsterdam, a very large church in those days. Big cities had you know, one overseeing ruling body, one consistory, we would call it in the Dutch Reformed Church, and uh, various you know, local parishes. So he was a parish pastor in a large city, a very popular preacher, but yet got in some hot water with some of the things he was saying about, uh, say, Romans 7, that's... Uh, Paul's not describing there the Christian, but you know his pre-Christian, pre-conversion experience. So that gets him into hot water. Uh, doesn't sound very Augustinian. Uh, gets to Romans nine, says Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. Speaking of uh, you know groups, categories, classes, not individuals of people. So hmm. a lot of controversy about uh, Arminius, and so that leads to like several years of discussions and debates between uh, he and his colleague. At that time, he had become professor at the uh, University of Leiden. And so his uh, senior colleague, Franciscus Homaris, was tasked with interviewing him and uh, you know, dialoguing back and forth. And Homaris was, uh, was from Friesland, which if you're familiar, if you're like me out there and you're uh, in somewhat of a reformed, Dutch reformed context, you know the difference between a Dutchman and a Frieslander. So <laughs> when I say Homaros was a, was a Frieslander, uh, you'll understand what that means. Uh, very cantankerous. So that leads to you know, these debates and dialogues between you know, theologians, but also involved with uh, civil governments because church and state you know, issues are, are not as separated as we would say here. So that doesn't resolve anything, though. So it just 
causes more and more tension, more and more problem uh, in the in the Netherlands. You know, politically speaking, because on the horizon is the year 1621, where the Spanish and Dutch they had a truce between their war that was coming to an end, and so war was going to re, uh, you know, resume. So the church was a mess. The civil government was under a lot of tension. He died though, and uh, his followers uh, continued the fight, and uh, that eventually leads to what we call the Synod of Dort, or the Gathering Ecclesiastical Churchly Assembly at Dort or Dortrecht, the city in the Netherlands, to deal with Arminius and all of his uh, followers. And I think some of our listeners are familiar with, you know, Arminianism, Calvinism, yep. uh, and your your book, uh, Grace Worth Fighting For, and it's it's a, it's a call to protect and proclaim the glorious gospel of grace. How were Arminius or his uh, remonstrant followers, in a certain sense, losing obscuring or forsaking perhaps the gospel of grace. What is it that the remonstrant teaching does that that is a problem and needs to be confronted, you know, in every generation? Yeah, great question. Uh, and I should have, you know, mentioned, as you mentioned the, that word remonstrant, uh, they weren't called Arminians and they wouldn't have called themselves or they weren't really called that by their, by their foes. They were called remonstrants, which was, the, these are protesters. They were protesting these, uh, these five points remonstrating yeah they were remonstrating so uh yeah how, how is their is their doctrine you know going against uh, the glorious gospel of grace well i mentioned homaris and uh he he saw that arminius's view of predestination on the basis of a foreseen faith so god looking down sort of the corridor of time and you know he sees the parade route sees all the various floats go by and you know which float goes left which one hmm. goes right you know, who believes, who doesn't believe he see, and, and then therefore God, you know, predestinating, choosing, electing on the basis of that, uh, Homaris, who was again, Arminius's colleague, but also becomes his theological opponent. Uh, he sees the whole issue, not about predestination, but about justification by faith alone, because that foreseeing faith, uh, and election on the basis of that turns in some way or another, you know, however people just define these things, but it, it turns faith into some kind of work or some kind of a, a prior a priori thing that God then responds to uh, after the fact, you know, quote unquote, after the fact from eternity, but God is responding and God is acting on the basis of our acts. And so uh, that work of faith becomes then uh, the thing that Homara said, jeopardizes the whole reformation project itself the whole the whole mm. entire reason why we exist is gone so that would be from you know homaris's point of view and, he, and if you read the canons of themselves they don't make that case exactly in the actual uh, articles but the issue of you know what is faith uh, the graciousness of faith versus sort of unaided uh, or even sort of aided graciously aided free will that really becomes the crux of the whole thing, this this issue of uh, of free will, that man has something within him, where he's still abled or even enabled in a partial way by God, to do something, uh, to grasp hold of salvation. So you know all the points of doctrine, you know, continually come back to this issue of of grace, but you know that's one particular issue that you know it gets out of the realm of sort of the eternal realm of predestination in the labyrinth, as Calvin called it. 
it puts it into real time and space. You know, the actual person believing in Jesus Christ, uh, you know, what is that belief? Where does it come from? How does it operate? You know, mm. is it grace or is it, or, or is it work? I suppose it ends up in a certain sense making um, our faith and in, in so much as it's unaided our gift to God rather than God's gracious gift to us. Yeah. You know, and that's right. Um, you know, they, there are remonstrants, uh, Arminians, and you see this in the actual canons themselves, uh, especially in the rejections of errors where some of them were being quoted as saying things like that free will itself, you know, is grace. So what's the gift of grace? What's the hmm. gift of faith? And someone have said, well, it's this sort of thing that God created us with, we call free will. That's grace. And so they, they would still, you know. Yeah, there's a, pl- there's a place to sort of tuck grace into the discussion right. and yeah, make so it operative. The, yeah, they would still make the platitude of like, you know, yeah, salvation is by grace. Well, what's grace? Well, grace is free. It's this created, con-created right. free will thing. <laughs> and it seems more like a grace of possibilities rather than a grace of actualities. That's right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Which, yeah, be, which also is like, that's one of the other sort of uh, issues swirling around, right? Is, is salvation... Is grace, you know, effectual? Yeah, or is it hypothetical? That's that's you see that right. in the issue of predestination in the Kansas Dort, uh, where there were remonstrants saying that God has made a, a a purpose of definite predestination, but there's also an indefinite predestination. Hmm. There's a there's a sort of general category of predestination. There's also a particular category of predestination. But it, really, what it comes down to is that God hasn't decreed anything other than here's the way to get in and you have to do something to get in. So there's, yeah. And, and you brought up the issue of the divine decree. It does, it does in a certain sense, um, contract the scope of the decree, right? Uh, in that the, there has to be, there have now to be on the remonstrant view, certain outcomes that themselves are not decreed only, you know, only the fork in the road is the decree, but the path you will yep. go by is not. That's yeah. Yeah. So basically you have this view of, God's decree is that there is an elect, you know, sort of anachronistically, we would call that class election. There's this class, right? There's this thing, this sort of bucket that God has decreed that, right? So that's definite, but it's completely indefinite. You know, uh, how many drops are going to fall into that bucket? <laughs> right. Yeah. So at the, right? at the end of the day, it's still, it's still just saying, well, a people will be saved. That's right. But let's, let's wait to find out who actually pulls the lever to put themselves into, into that number. It gets more complicated, but even, even those that believe to sort of get themselves you know, in, into that narrow path or into that bucket, that class uh, of, of the saved, their getting in is not even definite because they can get back out, right? These were not, uh, as, as we facetiously call them, one-point Calvinists. <laughs> <laughs> or I, I, somebody once called that a whiskey Calvinist takes his Calvinism one fifth. Um, these aren't that. This isn't that even. Uh, <laughs> I've heard that one before. That, that's that, that you feel funny. free to use it. It's not original with me. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> so in response to this, the Senate is called and it, it has a wide range of representatives from a, a number of different branches of the Reformed Church, and that's that's one of the distinctive features of it. And and one of the other distinctive features that you bring out very clearly, even just in the organization of your book, is 
the fact that the canons themselves have both articles, uh, in other words, sort of positive statements yep. of, of what they believe, and also rejections. They're, they're rejecting certain errors. And that, I think, does stand out in, in, in many ways today. We're, we're, we're more comfortable conversing with uh, doctrinal statements that are presented positively, but the canons are, are also very specifically rejecting certain things. So can you speak a little bit about, about the whole framework of, of, of the canons? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, yeah, because the canons are fairly lengthy. There are 93 positive articles as well as uh, these sort of, you know, quote unquote negative or rejection uh, statements. So combined 93 of them, you know, in contrast, you know, the, the Belgic confession of faith has 37 articles, right? Mm -hmm. So this is like, you know, two and a half times longer. So there, there was a debate around the synod about how exactly to respond. I mean, they, they all wanted to respond, but the question was how, you know, what's the form going to look like of that response? And so much of the debate, at least from the English, the British side, uh, was, you know, we need to have a response that is shaped by, you know, ancient uh, Christian Catholic responses to various errors. So, um, you know, like, for example, we're, we're familiar with, you know, in the reformed, you know, sort of broader reformed world, uh, Apostles Creed, Nicene Creed. Well, you know, the Nicene Creed, you know, we typically will recite that from time to time. Uh, it's a positive statement of who, the, who God is, is triune. But what we don't recite are the anathemas, right? Mm -hmm. The negative rejections that are also a part of that, which, you know, have sort of been lost to us. So at least historically speaking, there were synods and councils that would meet and they would give positive articles and then rejections or anathemas. So that sort of general pattern gets adopted of let's have some, let's have some clear, straightforward statements, and then we'll actually reject some things. So I would encourage people, if they're not familiar with the canons, or maybe you've tried to pick it up before and you found it, you know, somewhat difficult to read through the positive articles first. So there are, you know, there's, there's a first point or a first head of doctrine. There's a second head and a third slash fourth and a fifth. So read those positive articles in the first, second, three, four, and fifth articles uh, on predestination and so forth. Those are the, the, the more straightforward, you know, quote unquote, simpler articles. The rejections you'll see typically depends on, you know, who the publisher is, but the layout is typically the, there are two paragraphs in each of those rejections. The first one is going to be like in italics or bold print or have quotation marks around it. Those are actual quotations from the writings of 17th century remonstrant slash Arminians where they'll just basically say, you know, we reject the errors of those who say this. And then it gives a lengthy quote. The second paragraph then gives a response to that. And most often than not, the response is a lengthy string of biblical passages uh, that counter that position. So, yeah, that's kind of the, the, the general you know, flow of the articles. In your book, you reproduce some of those texts and, and offer some understanding and interaction with them to even further bolster the points of the various canons, which I think is a, one of the valuable uh, aspects of your book. I wanted to conclude with maybe one, one thought, something you address in your discussion that might surprise readers who are expecting 
another book on the five points of Calvinism, uh, which <laughs> this book isn't like that. It's the question of missions. Doesn't the canon, yep. don't the canons of Dort and the Synod of Dort, isn't that just a bucket of ice water on the fervor <laughs> of Christian missions? I mean, isn't that, isn't it a frozen chosen bring all the missionaries home result. And you you go at some length to describe the, the synod almost as a missionary synod. Yeah. Uh, and I wonder if you could maybe finish us out with a few remarks uh, in that connection. That might be one of the surprising, among other things, surprising components of this book for, for your readers. Yeah, thanks. Um, so just, you know, as kind of background to that, uh, I actually lectured recently on church planting at a seminary. And this, this, this is one of the big issues that always comes up you know, the relationship between our faith, our, th- our theology and our practice, right, of missions. Hmm. And um, yeah, you know, our history as, ref- as a reformed movement, you know, there's, there's a lot to it, but we, we do see some efforts at an early stage to think, you know, quote unquote, missionally or think outside of just converting, you know, Roman Catholics, right? So getting outside of the Christendom, Western European thing, you know, but there's a lot of, you know, financial background to that. Uh, there's landlocked countries. So it's mm. not you know, as cut and dry as folks saying, well, you know, Roman Catholics, you know, Robert Berlamine, for example, one of his mm. marks of a church is, is missionary endeavor and, and zeal. And so he points out, you know, we're, you know, we're in Brazil, we're in Mexico. And, you know, where are you at? You know, you're in Geneva. So, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of other factors, but there is an effort. And you see that at the, at the Synod itself, where uh, once the international delegates from all across Europe leave, the Dutch delegates stay and they actually approved, the Senate approved a mission training school for missionaries to go out. And, uh, you know, there was trade going on and there was a lot of worldwide expansion. So it gets mixed up into the whole colonial thing. But there was a sense of, you know, we need to send out missionaries and pastors, not just to evangelize, you know, those on our ships, but also across the world. So there's that going on in the background. Mm. But the actual canons themselves evidence, you know, this spirit of gospel mission and, uh, you know, in practical ways, just thinking from our vantage point, you know, well, how can I derive, you know, missionary principles from, you know, this document that's responding to, you know, issues of grace and predestination? Well, the fact that, you know, we have this very high doctrine of predestination and we have this doctrine of the efficacy or the, the effectiveness that Christ's death, you know, actually accomplishes uh, personal salvation for actual persons and a definite number of persons. And the Spirit's work is, uh, uh, is, a, is a powerful work that draws people into fellowship and, the, and, and that God is going to preserve those to the end. You know, the, the, you know so that's, those are our basic doctrines of quote-unquote Calvinism. This gives to us, I would argue, this is the reason why we do missions. The fact that God has predestined in the first point of doctrine, before that's even discussed, the article talks about the sinfulness of the human race, the love of God uh, to bring sinners to himself. And he does that through the word of the gospel. Right. So before they even mention predestination, they're already talking about missions. So, mm. you know, this should give us utmost confidence and to preach and to evangelize and to testify, you know, in our daily lives as, you know, just ordinary believers to have confidence that when we open our mouths to talk about Jesus with our neighbors, to be confident that God is actually going to do something, right? And not just sit back and the typical, you know, we can become very complacent, but to read these articles 
and to see how they actually motivate us and equip us to give a defense, uh, to speak about the Lord, and to be utterly confident that when we do that, we know that he will do the actual work of saving Mm. through this very means of his word being spoken by us. So, you know, that's kind of like, for me, the takeaway that I think people should always be focused on is, you know, study these doctrines, you know, not just for the doctrine's sake, but how do they then uh, move me out from my head and thinking right thoughts to actually then beginning to do, you know, right things and right actions, uh, and especially with our words of testifying. I think that's a good way to end, Danny, uh, because your book is entitled Grace Worth Fighting For, and it certainly is worth fighting for, not least for the reasons you just outlined. So thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate you taking your time. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Theology on the Go today. Our guest was Daniel R. Hyde, and his book was entitled Grace Worth Fighting For. And if you're interested in perhaps winning a copy of this book, you can go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link. There'll be a place there for you to enter for the opportunity to win Grace Worth Fighting For. It's great to be able to have conversations with friends like Danny, and it's great for us to be able to hear from listeners like you. So if you have a comment, a question that you'd like to pass along, please feel free to do that. Also, if you're able to help by donating, you can do that at AllianceNet.org or PlaceForTruth.org. Pass the word along to your friends who might be interested in Theology on the Go, and we thank you for listening to this brief interview about an eternal truth.